Hello, and welcome to episode 251 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, how's it going? Ian, how you feeling? Uh, I'm okay. I'm struggling through it. I lost my voice basically just after we recorded last week's episode, and it's slowly come back. Well, we said a lot of things, so... We did. We did say a lot of things. So yeah, that's been a fun journey back. But other than that, I'm doing all right. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm a little jet lagged at the moment, but I'm going to power through it and talk to you about some things and not just the thing we talked about last week, but other things happened too. Some actually- Other things happened. Pretty big news. We'll get there though. Yeah. So, I mean- any other week, it would be the lead story, the main story, and possibly you know some other things sprinkled in. But we will get to the fact that a federal judge has ruled against the merger of JetBlue and Spirit Airlines later in the show, because there is still much to cover. Jason, you alluded to the fact that you were jet lagged. You found out about the news that the judge had blocked the merger. <laughs> Between JetBlue and Spirit, where did you find out about that news? On board a JetBlue flight from Amsterdam to JFK. <laughs> and one of the five live TV channels they get on JetBlue on transatlantic flights is CNBC. So I turned that on and snapped a few pictures of that screen in the aircraft for historical preservation. Dare I say it's the second largest JetBlue-related news event to be shown live on JetBlue in the airline's history. Yeah. I mean, we have to go way back, like two decades I'm willing to go way back. You're going all the way back to like 2005, I think. 2005, when Canyon Blue landed with the twisted landing gear in LA. Yeah, that was like 2005, dude. That was almost 20 years ago. Certainly, (laughs) some other breaking news has happened regarding JetBlue since then on TV. Hopefully not. I, I mean... Presumably when they announced the merger, I don't know. I mean, okay, fine. Maybe I'm just an old man at this point. Well, you were on the the flight from Amsterdam to JFK, and it took quite a while to get from Amsterdam to JFK. And we ran the numbers and figured out that you, sir, have been on the third longest JetBlue flight ever. Yeah, at least we think so. JetBlue started operating transatlantic flights in the summer of 2021 and added notoriously Amsterdam most recently. It adds a couple new ones this summer, I think Edinburgh and Dublin, but Amsterdam is currently its longest flight by duration of flight and mileage. And when you add in some headwinds over the North Atlantic, that flight gets long. And it is safe to say if this was the third longest flight that JetBlue's ever had on the Amsterdam route, it is probably the third longest flight JetBlue has ever operated. And yeah, we left Amsterdam on time miraculously because there was a lot of snow, ice, sleet, hail, rain, all those kind of things in Europe this past week. But we left right on time. But we blocked in to JFK like 45 minutes late just because of the headwinds that day. Good times. And by good times, I mean fun. So that gets to something that we've talked about with single aisle transatlantic operations. Setting aside the passenger cabin and comfort issues, which I've kind of come around to being not as big of a deal as most people make them out to be when they say, oh, I'm never going to fly transatlantic 
single aisle, the A320, oh, I don't like it. But the actual operational concern is that because of the A321 LR and the, the XLR economics, they fly lower and they fly slower. And so they're much more impacted by those headwinds than say an A330 or an A350. And I mean, it adds not an inconsiderable amount of time. Yeah, I think the Delta A330-300 that left shortly ahead of us got into JFK about 20 minutes faster. And that could be for any number of reasons, just routing, approach. JFK could literally just be the way the way things go. They got in an hour earlier. Maybe they had a, a less long approach than we did. But yeah, I think it took a little bit longer, about 20 minutes longer for us to get in. But we were definitely stretching the legs of that A321neo-LR, but it's not the longest flight those operate. I think SAS gets the trophy for that Copenhagen to Dulles all the way down outside of DC is an even longer flight by about 45 minutes to almost an hour. So it's a long flight, but yeah. And they're only going to get longer. Yeah. I didn't expect to have such immediate backlash and unjustified hate of the idea from people who I think should know better of taking a narrow body long haul flight. I mean, it was kind of wild to see the hatred of it. Like, oh, I would never do that. It's a narrow body. That's ridiculous. And I'm thinking like, well, I flew JetBlue. So the seat has more legroom than basically any other airline you're going to get out there. The seat is as wide or wider than any wide body out there. Most airlines flying over the Atlantic, if they're flying the 777, it's going to be a 343 layout. So it's basically there is somebody on the window side who is two seats away from the aisle. And really the only downside was the economy cabin only had two labs at the rear of the aircraft and there's nowhere to wait for those. You end up doing that in the aisle, but it really wasn't that big a deal. And if it lowers costs and opens travel opportunities for passengers who may not be able to afford a Delta KLM ticket, I'm all for it. It was fine. It was 10 hours on board this aircraft, but it was fine. It was fine. Bottom line, it was fine. It was fine. And I I think that's what we're going to continue to find out. Okay. We rejoin the 737-9 MAX saga, or the current saga. We'll go back to the 9th of January. So we left off. We recorded last week's episode on the 10th. Steve Giordano joined us. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, last week's episode focused a lot on what happened on the accident flight. What happened on Alaska Airlines Flight 1282 on the 5th of January? What happened to that specific aircraft? This week, what Jason and I are going to do is walk through the timeline roughly since we recorded last week, what the actions by the FAA have been, what the actions and promised actions by Boeing have been, and what the airlines have been saying about those things. So we're going to go back to the 9th of January to remind ourselves that on the 9th of January, the FAA put out a statement. The way they've been phrasing these, they're very, very safety-oriented, very safety-conscious. It seems the FAA has certainly learned its verbiage since the MAX grounding in early 2019. It begins, every Boeing 737-9 MAX with a plug door will remain grounded until the FAA finds each can safely return to operation. And then it goes on to say that the Boeing must provide instructions for inspections and maintenance. 
Then this is where we kind of left things last week. Boeing offered an initial version of the instructions yesterday, so the 8th of January, that the revising based on feedback. So the airlines and the FAA provided feedback to Boeing and they said, okay, we need to revise the inspection instructions that we will then approve so that airlines can begin inspecting their aircraft. That has led us all the way in, well, frankly, to this week. The FAA, in the interim between requesting those revisions, and we'll get to when they finally approve those, well, when they conditionally approved something, we'll get there. The 11th of January, the FAA announced that it was investigating Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems to determine if Boeing failed to ensure that completed products conformed to its approved design and were in a condition for safe operation in compliance with FAA regulations. So the FAA sent a letter to Boeing saying that it was opening an investigation to find out whether or not they did what they were supposed to do to make sure that those aircraft were safe and were assembled correctly when they left the factory. I'm going to quote the FAA statement here. The above described circumstances, so the fact that the door plug came out, indicate that Boeing may have failed to ensure its completed products conformed to its approved design and were in a condition for safe operation in accordance with quality system inspection and test procedures. I'm going to kind of hit that last couple of words there, quality system inspection and test procedures. That same day, Boeing says, we will cooperate fully and transparently with the FAA and NTSB on their investigations. David Calhoun, we touched on this briefly last week, where Dave Calhoun, the CEO of Boeing, gave, or Boeing released a shortened version of his conversation or statements to Boeing employees. But Calhoun promised that they were going to approach this with 100% complete transparency every step of the way. Yeah. And there were a few notes on the January 11th FAA update, basically, that I wanted to call out. It starts off the update, and I quote, this incident should have never happened, and it cannot happen again. That is fairly firm wording from the FAA that I feel like we have not seen before. They are explicitly calling out Boeing for saying this should not have happened. And when they say it cannot happen again, they are acknowledging that we have seen past quality issues with the MAX and that this is a problematic aircraft from a problematic vendor at this point. And frankly, they're sick of it by the sound of it. But then at the end of it, they quote, the safety of the flying public, not speed, will determine the timeline for returning the Boeing 737-9 MAX to service. Ian, where have we heard something very similar to that before? I mean, this was the line that, I mean, well, every other statement that the FAA has put out. this particular incident. But this was the line. So longtime listeners of the podcast will know where this comes from. But if you're just coming to the podcast because of this issue, or you need a slight refresher, In the original MAX grounding, after the two crashes and MCAS was the focus, Boeing made a series of statements that the FAA, and I think anybody who's following the grounding, took as a nudge, a shove, 
a thoughtful shoulder in passing to speed up the approval process. Boeing thought that they were ready to move. Boeing said, hey, we're waiting on everybody. It's the FAA is holding us up. Like we fixed the problem, the FAA is holding us up. And the FAA told Boeing, I'm sure there were words exchanged behind closed doors, but in public, the adopted phrase became the safety of the flying public, not speed will determine the timeline. And that has been reused here. Yeah, exactly. Go on. The other interesting thing about the statement last week was that this is the first time where the FAA is floating the idea that it could remove entirely Boeing's delegated authority to certify its own aircraft. Yeah, that does kind of feel like the nuclear option. I would imagine they'd have to see something so horrifying, so out of the norm at one of their facilities that they would have to act on this. It seems like a bluff, but it's good that the FAA is even putting it on the table publicly to put on the table something that they may not actually do, but say, here are our options. And if we find that Boeing is so unprepared to do its job, that we will pull that lever if we have to. I can't imagine that happening, but it's good just to see the FAA put its cards on the table and say, here's what we can do. Don't make us do it. So I got ahead of myself. So we were still on the 11th of January. It's like a week ago. I know. The 12th of January is when the FAA announced that. So in addition to the investigation into this specific incident and Boeing's quality systems writ large, the FAA announced what it calls, quote, new and significant actions to immediately increase its oversight of Boeing production and manufacturing. So this was just the day after they announced that they were going to begin an investigation. So then the FAA on the 12th of January announces an audit involving the Boeing 737-9 MAX production line and its suppliers to evaluate Boeing's compliance with its approved quality procedures. Then the results of that initial audit will determine whether additional audits are necessary. So it could be audits all the way down. We just don't know yet. Here's one that I find interesting. Increased monitoring of Boeing 737-9 MAX in-service events. I assume that just means that the FAA is going to take a closer look at any reported in-service events rather than just kind of through normal oversight. And then finally, an assessment of safety risks around delegated authority and quality oversight, an examination of options to move these functions under independent third-party entities. That one is fascinating to me. So essentially, Boeing wouldn't be able to do what it is doing today, but the FAA probably doesn't have the capacity to do it either. So someone else would come in and do that work. That is not a great option, but if it's what has to happen, I mean, it's probably the best way to do it. Yeah. That one, I mean- All sorts of questions. Yeah. The thing that I'm trying to get at here is is exactly what Jason just said. Every news statement by the FAA and by airlines, and I hesitate to say by Boeing because Boeing, for its part in its commitment to 100% transparency, hasn't really said anything. Well, it said one Other thing. Other than agreeing. Exactly. It said one thing, January 12th. It issued two sentences. We welcome the FAA's announcement and will cooperate fully and transparently with our regulator. We support all actions that strengthen quality and safety, and we are taking 
actions across our production system, end quote. So yeah, I guess there's not much more they can or should say in that situation. Right. Good thing they said something because they have often gone seemingly too long between statements. But yeah, this is what Boeing, they acknowledged it. There's nothing more for them to say at that point. But the FAA had more to say the next day, didn't they? They did. But I want to stop for a second and remind everybody that we're talking about, we've made it to the evening of January 12th. The accident meets the definition of an accident. The accident occurred on the evening of the 5th of January. The FAA made an immediate statement that it knew something had happened and that they were investigating. They followed that up with the NTSB will investigate and they will support that investigation. Then they said, we're going to issue an emergency airworthiness directive that will prevent this condition from happening again. And it's going to take four to eight hours worth of work for the airlines to do each inspection and get the aircraft back in the air. That was the 6th of January. Six days later, here's the FAA again on the 12th of January. The FAA is requiring Boeing to provide additional data before the agency approves an extensive and rigorous inspection and maintenance process for returning 737 MAX 9 aircraft to service. So six days after announcing that they had an emergency airworthiness directive ready and that it would take airlines four to eight hours of total work per aircraft to get things done, They're requiring Boeing to provide additional data before they even approve an inspection. Yeah. Go on. And so here's where it gets even more interesting to me. After reviewing Boeing's proposed inspection and maintenance instructions, quote, the FAA determined it needed additional data before approving them. Accordingly, which is a weird adverb here, accordingly, the FAA is requiring plug door inspections of 40 aircraft. So what they did is they basically, and I don't know if this was 20 Alaska, 20 United, but Alaska inspected 20 aircraft. So I'm assuming that United inspected 20 aircraft as well, because those are the two US airlines that operate the door plug configuration. The FAA is encouraged by the exhaustive nature of Boeing's instructions for inspections and maintenance. However, in the interest of maintaining the highest standard of safety, the agency will not approve the inspection and maintenance process until it reviews the data from the initial round of 40 inspections. Now, we've been operating under the assumption, rightly or wrongly, but we've been operating under the assumption since the preliminary data shared by the NTSB pointed to either very loose or entirely missing bolts. We've been operating under the assumption that this is a, are the bolts there? Are they tight? Now, the FAA requiring an initial round of 40 inspections and then reviewing data from those inspections before issuing how to safely mitigate whatever is happening, that, again, raises a lot more questions than it answers. Yeah. And spoiler, we're going to jump ahead a little bit here. It is now Wednesday, January 17th, and the inspection of those 40 aircraft has only just wrapped up. So that took five days to do 40 aircraft. That is a much longer period of time than I think anyone would have initially guessed. And we don't know what happened in that inspection of those 40 aircraft, how exhaustive it was, how careful they were. Those details have not been revealed, but that is far longer a period of time than I think anyone thought it would last for. Yeah, especially since the airlines were very forward in saying, we've taken these planes apart. 
they are ready to go. And we've They're seen ready pictures of aircraft from United and Alaska with the, the seats removed in that section, the sidewall removed, everything's ready to yeah. go. So what exactly did the 40 aircraft inspection entail? We just don't know. And they're being... I'm not going to say cagey, but they're not being revealing of exactly what they were looking for, what those inspections revealed, what they've learned from it. I would have liked to see some of that, but I guess we simply don't need to know that. I mean, yeah, we don't, I would we like don't to know need it. to know. Yes, I would like to know as well. I mean, Boeing maintenance instructions, Boeing inspection and maintenance instructions, the moms, have historically been considered proprietary and not shared with the general public. I think at this point, it might be worth reconsidering that view in this regard. Yes. I don't think any other manufacturer is going to steal the notes from this particular inspection. <laughs> Airbus can probably handle this on its own. The more public Boeing is with exactly what's going on here, I think the better because they're on thin ice at the moment. So that takes us to the, where are we? We're on the 13th of January. Oh, on the 12th of January, Alaska Airlines also announced that it would start moving 737-9s that are outstations without a maintenance facility. So basically aircraft that aren't in Seattle or there's a few that are in Oklahoma City right now, but start moving those towards maintenance bases. The first one departed today on the 17th of January. N709AL went from Austin to Oklahoma City, where it will presumably have its inspection and any fixes that need to be done. As part of this transparency, shall we say, and certainly as an effort to regain the trust of its customers. Boeing has invited, shall we say, airlines to enhance their own oversight of Boeing's work. Alaska Airlines is taking them up on it. Ryanair is taking them up on it. Ryanair, one of Boeing's biggest customers, has announced that it will double the number of inspectors that it assigns to Boeing production facilities to ensure that the aircraft are being assembled correctly and being delivered as they should. One of the interesting quotations comes from Alaska Airlines on the 13th of January. Quote, Boeing leadership has publicly said that this incident is the result of a quality escape. This week, we engaged in a candid conversation, which means it was interesting and perhaps some yelling, quote, candid conversation with Boeing CEO and leadership to discuss their quality improvement plans to ensure the delivery of the highest quality aircraft off the production line for Alaska. Mm. I would love to have been a fly on the wall for that particular candid conversation. I'm sure that phone call was quite interesting. And Alaska went on to say, it will initiate and enhance our own layers of quality control to the production of our airplanes, including our quality and audit teams began a thorough review of Boeing's production quality and control system, including Boeing's production vendor oversight. So I assume this means we don't just want to see what Boeing is doing. We want to see how Boeing is managing Spirit Aerosystem. I don't think they name check Spirit, but that's really what you have to That's who we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Start, and I quote, again, starting this week, we will also enhance our own quality oversight of Alaska aircraft on the Boeing production line, expanding our team with additional experienced professionals to validate work and quality on the Boeing 737 production line. It's a great step by these airlines putting their own people or more people on Boeing's line, but it's just incredible that it's come to this, that an aircraft that Boeing has been manufacturing for decades and decades, more than a half a century – they have to have 
airline representatives looking over their shoulder to make sure the bolts are tightened. But Boeing is welcoming this, which is good. And to Boeing's credit in after fact, I suppose, they're also doing a number of other things, more quality inspections, additional inspections throughout the build process at Boeing and Spirit. They are adding people to work alongside the Spirit Aerosystems folks that will examine the installation of the mid-exit door plug, as well as, quote, 50 other points in Spirit's build process. I mean, Jason's point, the 737 was introduced to the world in 1967. It's undergone a variety of iterations. It's been stretched. It's been Notoriously so. It's been updated. It's been... I mean, the engines are new, the avionics are new, the wings are slightly different, systems have changed, but it remains fundamentally the same plane that it was in the late 60s. And to Jason's point, they've been building this plane for decades. And to me, that's the biggest thing. We talked about this a little bit last week where we want to be You know, Steve mentioned Boeing's too big to fail. And I think certainly that's the political case and the economic case. But from a point of pride and from someone who loves aviation and who got into aviation because Boeing aircraft would fly over my house and I would get to watch them and go, those things are really cool. I think that it's a supreme disappointment that we're having this conversation this year about these things. I think that fundamentally, it's disappointment in an organization that inspired a lot of us to take an interest in this industry. I mean, the Joe Sutter's book about the development of the 747, and I've probably read it a dozen times. It's not a long book, and if you haven't read it, it's absolutely fantastic. It's just called 747. It's by Joe Sutter, who is the lead designer of the 747. But he also worked on the 707, the 727, and the 737. He's the gentleman that's responsible for where the engines are on the 737, for for good or for ill, I I guess, depending on your perspective. He's responsible for practically Boeing still existing as a company. His description of that era in Boeing, I'm sure it's a rosier picture. You know, Any memoir is going to be rosier than the truth, but- It's inspirational to see what they were doing at that time. And it's a supreme disappointment to see what has happened to Boeing and what, frankly, continues to happen to Boeing. And for all of these, you know, quality systems, quality assurance, improvements, inspections, and things like that, we've already been here. We've already done this and not that long ago. I mean, the entire Max fleet was grounded for almost two years. And I feel like we're talking about the same things again. I think it's different. With the original Max grounding and MCAS, it wasn't a workmanship quality issue. It wasn't a Steve didn't tighten the bolts properly on this plug door or Jake forgot the bolts entirely. The original MCAS issue was an issue of deception and deceit and lying to customers. It was more of a 
a mentality of Boeing of we're always right. We're going to do the bare minimum to make sure that this airplane is safe. We're not going to tell everyone everything. It's going to be fine because we're going to make a lot of money and it's going to be great. That's different. That is a corporate culture situation that can and should and needed to change. And I'm not convinced did change. This is a fundamentally different problem. But that's my point. Yeah, this is a fundamentally different problem, though. I don't think it is. I think it is. I think this is fundamentally worse. I think there was an infection at Boeing that has still not been truly rooted out, that there was a business infection there that they were doing what they could do to maximize profits. Capitalism really took hold of Boeing, and I don't think anyone can argue against that. This is different. This is, we cannot do the most basic task required of us which is tightening bolts and making sure things don't fly off a two-month-old aircraft. This is different. This is much more troubling to me. This can't be fixed by turning over the board, even though that should happen. This is a fundamental issue that their people on the line building their airplane can't do what they are there to do without a Boeing inspector looking over their shoulder, and then an airline inspector looking over their shoulder, and then an independent assessor looking over their shoulder. There are four layers of shoulder looking happening here. And that's <laughs> it's not sustainable. I mean, I, we can laugh about it, but that can't continue. You can't have four people looking at everyone tightening every bolt. Like that's just, that's not going to work. And this is, to me, is a much harder problem to solve than than lying to customers and designing a faulty piece of software this is bad. I think they're both bad, but I think they both stem from the root, the same root, which is, it's a cultural problem to me. Yeah. They just didn't do what they were supposed to do. And to me, that comes from the top. That culture of this is fine comes from the top. You know, and that to me, it's the same issue. You know, the MCAS, it was good enough. It was a fine solution. Good enough. Put it on the airplane. This is, you know, the doors on the airplane. Good enough. They're separate immediate issues, certainly. But to your point where there needs to be systemic change at the top of Boy, I could not agree more. Yeah. And change hopefully is coming. There is a change to top leadership coming to Boeing commercial airplanes, but not soon enough, unfortunately. That takes us to today. The first 40 inspections are complete. The FAA is reviewing the data. The aircraft remain grounded. So one can safely assume that this will stretch at least another week. I mean, if it took five days to examine 40 aircraft, there are over, well, nearly 200 aircraft that need to be inspected and returned to service. We'll talk about it again next week, I'm sure. Yep. I hope we have some good news. I hope another week from now, there is good news that inspections are happening and they can get these aircraft back into service because this is long-term. This is just not sustainable for the airlines impacted by this. It's 20% of Alaska's fleet. It's 20% of Alaska's fleet. It's 8% of United's, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you have to understand how many flights United operates a day. For COPA, I mean, it's a huge chunk of its fleet. Yeah. Not insignificant. Airlines are losing patience, understandably. Uh, Alaska Airlines Today, the CEO of Alaska, put out a video message standing behind Boeing uh, as much as you reasonably can in this situation, visibly frustrated and apologizing to passengers. I, I'm a little 
I didn't quite like the part where he explained what proudly all Boeing means to them. Like maybe, maybe downplay that a little bit more. It, it is a tagline. <laughs> it, it is not more than a tagline. It is maybe reconsider that at this point. I don't know. It sucks for everyone involved and nobody wants this to continue. With those inspections of the first 40 aircraft, we don't know what they discovered, but hopefully it is nothing major. They can get the fix out and get these aircraft back into service and then start the process of, how should I put this, reassuring the flying public once again that the MAX is not a death trap. And I think that's going to be harder this time somehow than it was last time. I think that goes to your point about, you know, with software, I think there's enough people who don't necessarily understand that if you say, we fixed the software, it's safe now, they will believe that. We fixed the software. And if the software is not fixed, there's a chunky switch here that we can flip and just we just turn that thing off. And that's essentially right. what they did. This is different. Anyone can understand Bolt's not tight. Bolt's yep. there. Bolt's not there. Yeah, that's not good, especially when the consequence of the bolts either not being tightened or not there is so dramatic and is so sudden and was so visible in social media this time. It's going to be an uphill battle, and the the flying public will forget, and the next time they see a $27 fare sale on Alaska, they will forget that it's operated by a 737 MAX 9. But the reputation hit Boeing and the MAX as an aircraft have taken this time around in my mind, it's irredeemable. It is so much damage so quickly. I don't know how they salvage this brand name. And by that, I mean the Max, not, not Boeing itself. Or both. I don't know. We'll talk more about this next week. But until then, the planes are sitting on the ground, waiting to be inspected. Meanwhile, JetBlue and Spirit Airlines have been permanently enjoined from executing the proposed merger as agreed on July 28th, 2022, which shows you how long ago this started. So the beginning of this story is that Spirit and Frontier, both ultra-low-cost carriers, were going to merge. They had a, an agreement. Everyone goes, this makes sense. Yeah, This I actually like this. works. This yeah. might go through. I first read about it on one of those outdoor kiosks, uh, screens in Manhattan and said, huh, yeah, I like it. I like All it. Right. Not, not the way I like news being broken to me in my industry, but yeah, okay. I'm going to continue on my day. But then JetBlue came along with a better offer and said, no, we're going to buy Spirit. The idea here would be that JetBlue would absorb Spirit's pilots and aircraft as a way to grow their fleet their pilot core, and their route network. The United States government said, not so fast. JetBlue's argument was that the acquisition of spirits would lower fares because of the quote-unquote JetBlue effect that JetBlue has sometimes had on markets that it entered. Historically, I mean, we might have to date ourselves back 15, 20 years ago since this was really a thing, but it was most certainly a thing decades ago. A thing ago. at some point. And their argument was fares will go down and it'll be great for everybody. The government's argument was, well, that's not what we think is going to happen. We think that Spirit is an ultra low cost carrier. You're not. Fares on balance will rise because you're going to jet blueify the Spirit aircraft so they will be less dense and less yellow. The less yellow part was not part of the government's argument. It's part of my argument why I didn't like this merger. 
Right. As valid as any other defense. I know. This week, a federal judge blocked the merger. Not any merger. So they're they're free to try again with a different format. But the merger that they agreed to in July of 2022 is blocked. And I'm going to quote the end of the decision because Man, there, there's, there's a lot of quotable lines in this decision. There are. We're not even going to quote the part where he just riffs on Les Miserables at all. Les Mis, yeah, yeah, which is just fantastic. There's a whole footnote with Les Mis lyrics. But I know the quote you're going to read at the end. Take it away. The court rules that the proposed acquisition violates Section 7 of the Clayton Act. Spirit is a small airline, but there are those who love it. To those dedicated customers of Spirit, this one's for you. Why? Because the Clayton Act, a 109-year-old statute, requires this result, a statute that continues to deliver for the American people. Hmm. What? Yeah. I know what he's saying here. He's saying that there are people who are dedicated to Spirit because because Spirit is a low-cost airline and often people can only fly because Spirit offers a low fare. And the ruling overall, which is like 113 pages, took a long time to load on in-flight Wi-Fi, by the way. But it goes into saying (laughs) some kind of believable but outlandish things like, if not for Spirit, I'd never see my family in San Juan because they're so cheap and things like that. And I I get it. But yeah, the ruling was pretty – it did acknowledge that JetBlue – argued well against some points, but overall, they determined that without spirit, there would be less competition. And the definition they had of competition, this was a foregone conclusion. It was interesting. Uh, I'm going to pull another quote here. Although the defendant airline provided ample evidence at the rebuttal stage that the anti-competitive harms of the proposed acquisition will be offset, both by new entries into the harmed markets and potential pro-competitive benefits, this evidence fails to establish that the proposed merger would not substantially lessen in at least some of the relevant markets. So it was really a determination that if JetBlue nullified spirit from the market, if it ceased to exist, it would take so long for if ever, for other airlines to backfill the routes and the place in the market that we know Frontier can't possibly grow that fast. We know other airlines starting up like a Velo and Breeze, they can't possibly grow to the size of Spirit in the foreseeable future that without Spirit, this segment of the market goes unserved. That was the crux of the rejection. The follow-on is a bit interesting too. So this was John Ostra quoting TD Cohen analyst, Helene Becker. This one gets spicy. On Spirit, quote, we believe the best case scenario for Spirit is a chapter 11 filing followed by a liquidation. Yeah. Wow. I hope that is not the case. And I'm going to echo what uh, Brett Snyder, Cranky Flyer, regarded that in the last year, Spirit hasn't done a damn thing. It's just been sitting there waiting out to see what happens, not really doing anything strategic. It's got to figure out its near future in a hurry, and it's a long-term future. They have plans for profitability in the long term if they go it on their own, but now they need to make those plans a reality, and they need to do it quickly. I hope a Chapter 11 and then liquidation is not Spirit's near-term future, because then more harm will obviously come to everyone if Spirit simply stops existing rather than being absorbed by JetBlue. But I wouldn't be shocked if Frontier gives it another 
shot. I feel like that would see little to no resistance from the DOJ, but we'll have to wait and see what happens. But as we know it now, the Spirit JetBlue merger is dead, but could be revived possibly if JetBlue determines it wants to appeal this ruling. And, and they very well may do that. They gave up a lot for this merger, including the Northeast Alliance with American. So now JetBlue too is in a bad position. It is not exactly a thriving airline. It, it's too small to compete. It has lots of operational and financial issues. So what does JetBlue do now? This ruling could be a double-edged sword. Yeah, it saves spirit for the low-cost flyers, but in doing so, it may permanently harm JetBlue and spirit as the independent airlines they are today. We'll have to wait and see. I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I would say that we can count on an appeal from both of them against the Yes, I wouldn't be shocked. And it could have been a strategic move all along. I, I think we always knew this, that JetBlue never appealed the Northeast Alliance ruling against it. American said it was going to appeal, but JetBlue hadn't made that decision. Maybe it was all along. They were so so sure that they weren't going to get this merger through and that they were going to appeal it, that they didn't even want to give the appearance that they wanted to salvage the NEA. Pretty strategic, but it won't matter for the current CEO. Robin Hayes will be out in a month. So someone else, uh, Joanna Garrity, I believe, who's the current COO, I think. I'm not 100% sure on that. But she's been the shoo-in to take over as CEO for JetBlue for a long time, and that will be happening next month. So this becomes her problem now. Good luck. Jason, there are holes. Where are there holes and why is it a problem? They're in runways and you're not supposed to have holes in your runway. Wow, it's been a while since we've talked about like random news we find on the internet. Random alien news. Yeah, where did this happen? Where did this happen? This is in Hawaii, my friend. Why are there holes in the runway in Hawaii? I don't know. I didn't know they get potholes in Hawaii. They don't have ice or snow. I guess it happens some other way, but they had a hole in the runway. Which airport was this at? Kona, was it? Yes, I believe. Yes. And it shut down operations for mainly Hawaiian, let's be honest, overnight caused some chaos. But yeah, not too often you see a random notum saying, airport closed, there's a hole in the runway. A few years ago, the FAA released a new notum tool where you could search the free text of the notums. And so every once in a while, I'll go through with a, a list of interesting phrases and, and see if anything pops up, like cows, sheep, goats, you know, animals that tend to wander across runways. And every once in a while, there's some, some good stuff. But now I'm going to have to add holes to that list. Yep. You don't want to drive your airplane over a hole in the runway. You know what else you don't want? On your airplane on the runway. Fuselage cracks are, are, are not particularly no. good. Those, those are bad. Those are bad news. This comes to us from an Aviation Week article saying that Lufthansa discovered and grounded two of its recently converted A321 freighters due to cracks in the fuselage, a single fine crack found on the rear fuselage structure of the two freighters. Apparently, they were already undergoing a routine check and that they don't believe the cracks were caused by the conversion of those aircraft to freighters. But that's not good. You never want to hear that. It does have other freighters that are still in operation. And I'm, I'm kind of just laughing to myself because I'm seeing that this is Lufthansa, but it's Lufthansa Cargo 
and its delivery is Lufthansa Cargo, but it's also operated somehow by Lufthansa City Line. So it's just a, how exactly. many layers deep of Lufthansa can you get? I don't want to find the ultimate answer to that question. You may never know, but you know what you might be able to answer is what happens if a small airline with only a you know a couple Dash H or Beavers or, or seaplanes in a very specific geography, what if they get too ambitious? What usually happens? Well, historically, that has not worked out well for such airlines. But no. why not give it a shot? Sure. Moldovian, I guess, and a little airline in the Maldives, they operate mostly little seaplanes, and I think they have one A320. Flight Global reports, they want to go crazy, and they want to obtain a 787-8, maybe also an A330-200. They announced these things on two separate days, which is a little odd, but they want to go long haul, which some aircraft, they probably can't afford to a place that probably doesn't quite need it, don't really know, but we've seen this play out before where little airline gets a little too ambitious. They're served by, you know, some of the largest aircraft in the world already. So I mean the I mean who doesn't want to go to the Maldives? But this is a very strange strange request to me because why get one A three thirty and one seven eight seven for maximum complexity. Yeah, it seems like a terrible way to make your maintenance people go crazy. I mean, I, I do like that they were as specific enough to say as, yeah, we want a 7-8 with the GENX engine. So, But we'd also consider one with the uh, Trent 1000 from Rolls-Royce. Oh, okay. So you want one or the other. You'll take anything out there then. Fine. So be it. It's just really strange. But we, we I hope they don't do this because it will ultimately result in the demise of the entire airline. And this has happened before. And I just <laughs> happened again. But like, we are back at that point of the airline industry that we were at before COVID, where little airlines were doing things that they probably shouldn't have been doing and growing too fast, going too far with planes it couldn't afford. And then they hit a brick wall and the whole thing came tumbling down and they never operated again. I guess we've gotten to that point in the recovery that we could start having fun with this again. Why not? I mean, maybe that's good. It's good, but it's also just like, we've seen this happen before. Don't do it. Don't be the airline that does it. But it's good to see that there is an airline doing something like this again. I guess we've reached the amusing portion of the events. Here's just unbridled good news and and a cool one because I'm a a sucker for a special delivery. LATAM is developing five country-specific special liveries for its fleet. These will go on to uh, A320 family aircraft. So you'll have a green and yellow Brazil flag livery. You'll have a blue and red Chile livery. You'll have a yellow, blue, and red Colombia livery, a yellow, blue, and red, but different Ecuador livery, and a red Peru livery. So very cool stuff. I like the idea. A nice play on the existing tail. I would have liked to see a little more color on this fuselage, make it make it a little more special, but cool nonetheless. And looking forward to to seeing those actual aircraft. Yeah, nice to see LATAM embracing its culture and all of the various countries that make up that airline. It really is Latin America's airline, more or less. So that, that's pretty cool. I like it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing them fly. 
You know what you're not going to see flying again? Oh, good one. Uh, I I had to get that in there before you continued. You almost missed a fantastic transition. I'll just take it from here. Remember the Ural Airlines A320 that landed in a field because pilots in charge really didn't take everything into consideration that they needed to during a fuel issue and put her down in the fields of Siberia? Well, unfortunately, it turns out that aircraft against our wishes will not be flying out. They will scrap that it. That needs to place. be on the record. Against our wishes. Against our wishes. And every Avgeek's wishes. We would all prefer to see it fly out of there. Again, I was really looking forward to that absolutely abysmal quality video coming out of Russia that all of their interesting videos seem to be. But this aircraft will be parted out in place to support the, I guess, other aircraft at URL Airlines. And that's just disappointing, isn't it? I hate when they take the prudent decision. Don't you? Yeah. I mean, if anywhere in the world was going to decide to not do the prudent thing and, and fly this sucker out, it would have been Russia, especially right now. But saner minds prevailed and it won't be happening. Oh, well. Sad. I mean, there's always next time. I mean, I hope there isn't, but sure. Tell me I'm wrong. You are not wrong. It's happened several times before. It will happen again. Oh. Uh, well... We made it through episode 251 without, I think, any further statements coming from either any of the airlines affected by the 737-9 MAX grounding, the FAA, or Boeing. So we'll leave it here right now. And I'm sure as soon as we hit stop, something else will come out. And you'll read about that you know, on the Flight Radar 24 blog. Wait, maybe. actually, I wait. Oh, I literally Jason. just refreshed Boeing's page and there is an update. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun visited Spirit Aerosystems in Wichita, Kansas, and held an employee town meeting with Spirit Aerosystems CEO Pat Shanahan and Spirit Aerosystems board chair Bob Johnson. They shared the following with Spirit Aerosystems employee. We're going to get better, not because the two of us are talking, but because the engineers at Boeing, the mechanics at Boeing, the inspectors at Boeing, the engineers at Spirit, the mechanics at Spirit, the inspectors at Spirit, they're going to speak the same language on this in every way, shape or form. We're going to learn from it, then we're going to apply it to literally everything we do together, end quote. Good thing I hit F5. Not exactly newsworthy, nothing major, but a statement nonetheless that said really nothing. We'll take what we can get. And on that note, this has been episode 251 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rubinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.